Hello and welcome to the December edition of Hell is for Hyphenates for 2010. I am writer, hyphen critic, hyphen stuttering king of England, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi, I'm uh, writer, hyphen director, hyphen 3D uh, IMAX spectacular Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is our special guest... Hello, my name is Tara Judah. I am a film reviewer, hyphen, advocate of the preservation of the Astor Theatre, hyphen, IMAX enthusiast. Don't don't bring your left wing causes <laughs> here. This is not the forum. For, no, we all love the Astor Theatre. <laughs> so we support this entirely. The films of December, we were just looking over them and uh, usually December is, there's a ton of stuff coming out. There's very little uh, this time. One One that did come out, Blue Valentine. Uh, light holiday fair, a lot of fun for the whole family. How did we find this one? This this film is it's amazing. It's I've, no film has moved me like this in uh, quite some time. I, I I just thought it was it was absolutely brilliant. It's so affecting and real and intensely uncomfortably relatable. Mm. You see, you know, parts of yourself into this relationship. There's a point where it's like this doesn't feel like a movie relationship anymore. This feels like something real, something else. What's more, it's shot beautifully. The visuals look like photographs. Looks mm. like well, but even more so, they look like memories. Yeah, and um, it's it, like shot on the red and on s- and some sequences on sixteen, I think, and it just looks gorgeous. Adding to the whole the whole sort of real state of it, and um, and Gosling, Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams are absolutely brilliant. Uh, what did you think of this, Tara? Yeah, I thought it was fantastic, and I think that you're right. The absolute strength of the film really is from the two central leads, whose relationship is so incredibly believable. I I think it's almost impossible for anybody who's ever had a relationship not to be able to see the chemistry between them and to feel something um, towards it. And I think it's a really fascinating film as well. I think it's got a really interesting uh, approach to the storytelling because it starts off at the end of their relationship and flashes sort of back backwards and forwards to when they first met and how they started dating. And it's a really sort of fluid trajectory, even though it's disjointed in some ways. I think that's how your memory of a relationship at the end of it tends it to be. Without the sci-fi, it's of, it's almost a eternal sunshine of the spotless mind kind of approach, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, and that's, I mean, that I've always kind of gone on record as saying eternal sunshine is my personal favourite love story on film of all time, and Blue Valentine is up there. I was absolutely this film cut me in half. Um, what about you, Lee? I thought it was rubbish. No, I just want to <laughs> just want to see your reactions when I said that. No, I agree completely. I was about to hear. This podcast is finished because Lee is now dead. No. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, um, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's just one of the most amazing dramas I've ever seen, and I almost don't want to want to review it or critique it because it's so affecting, as you say, mm. that it hit, it hit me so deeply that I don't really want to talk about it. You know, it's that good. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it's so just not. so honest. Mm. That, you know, you you can see in their performances how much they believe it. So it's very hard. Not to be affected by that, absolutely. Uh, speaking of deeply affecting personal dramas, uh, Devil. <laughs> How did we feel about Devil? I tried so very hard to find lots of really interesting things in Devil, and I mostly failed. Yeah, so, so, so did the filmmakers. They fa- failed to find anything interesting in there as well. <laughs> it seems like the fingerprints of one M. Night Shyamalan, are we right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, but he... 
he didn't actually direct it. So, I mean, it wasn't... It's com- his screenplay, though, wasn't it? Or it's his story. story. story he didn't write the screenplay, actually. I think it was Brian Nelson who did 30 Days of Night. Um, and Hard Candy. And Hard Candy, mm-hmm. who actually wrote the screenplay for it. So and I think most of the CG budget went into the effect at the start that says, The Night Chronicles, and then it turns around <laughs> to a one, which is the most... It's the scariest part of the film where it says one, because it indicates there's going to be a two. <laughs> and then a three, you know, you... That there are more thing. Night Chronicles coming. It wasn't until after the film that I realised we were supposed to care about the characters in, <laughs> in the elevator. Because, you know, uh, for those who don't know, it's set in an elevator and uh, it breaks down and one of the people in the elevator is, and you probably guessed this by now, the devil. But, but you're actually, supposed to care. You know, the but reasonable like, be a cool idea. Mm. I was going to say, that's a really cool idea for a horror film. Like, in when, theory, yeah. that, that actually sounds great. When you stand it back like and look at a Twilight Zone episode, actually. Well, that's, I think that's what it aims to be, and it, it should have been that. But you just don't care. You're like, okay, one of these guys is going to kill all the others, and that's fine by me. I think that it's interesting that he tried to align the audience with the people who weren't in the elevator. Like, it seemed as though the detective was the person you were supposed to identify with rather than yeah. the people inside the elevator. It was an odd choice. Yeah, it was very yeah. strange because, like you say, then that results in you not really caring if any of the people in the elevator live or die because you're sort of like, well, we've been told that they're all horrible, terrible people and that we're here to watch them die, okay? That's fine. <laughs> and then that's what <laughs> follows for 80 minutes. And because <laughs> the only character you really care about, if at all, is the detective on the outside you end up hoping, God, I really hope when he goes in to clean up the corpses, he doesn't get blood on that nice <laughs> suit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's You're not really in fear that anything particularly bad is going to happen to him no. throughout the film. So it, it's very strange in the way that it's set up because it doesn't, it doesn't clearly align you with anybody that you would invest in, mm. uh, which I think is its ultimate downfall, to be honest. But I think a, a more successful uh, schlocky film was Rare Exports, the um, evil Santa not bad Santa, evil supernatural Santa film from Scandinavia, uh, which I really, really, really enjoyed. And pretty much my only problem with it was that it was a really, really good film and there was a really, really great film inside it waiting to get out. Mm. But that said, I I still really loved it. Yeah, it didn't quite go all the way, did it? Quite literally. Um, Yeah, it's... um, Look, I found it really enjoyable. I... The thing I dug, I think the thing I dug most about it was, aside from, <laughs> I love that it's a, fam- a European version of a family film, which means there is the occasional F-bomb and copious elderly male nudity, uh, <laughs> as only the Europeans can. Yeah, and I, I think if you take the F-bombs <laughs> and the elderly male nudity out, it wouldn't be out of place made in the mid-80s by Joe Dante and produced by Steven Spielberg. Mm. It had that very 80s kind of boys, you know, like as a kid kind of hero, it's dark, it's a little weird, it's, you know, it's you know, a villain that, uh, a threat that actually is, you know, kills people. Like we're watching Gremlins again the other week and there's that, you sort of think, wow, Hollywood wouldn't have the balls to do something like this these days. Yeah. It turns out Europeans do. And they show the balls on screen. They do, frequently. Many, many times. I'm going to disagree with you both. I don't like it at all, actually. I am... Um, I think that the main problem for me is that it's situated somewhere between a child's film and an adult's film and it's not enough of either to succeed um there's too much that sounds a bit like a britney spears song (laughs) (laughs) not a child not yet a no how audacious (laughs) (laughs) i think that there's there's not enough um 
of the rather there's too much violence, too much nudity, too much swearing, and to be honest, also for an English language audience, too m- too much subtitling for children to watch. Mm. But then on the flip side of that, it's not quite dark enough for adults. It's a little bit too soft. I sort of felt like where they went to comic relief or where it was a little bit lighter touch and what doesn't happen that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> um, mm. That that it wasn't quite dark enough. It starts off with these really great. Uh, sort of tracing of mythology and all the really interesting ways in which Santa is an evil character rather than, uh, you know, jovial and loving, caring, sharing character. But then it just doesn't take it far enough in terms of the dark side, for my liking anyway. So I actually thought that it was, um, it, it just sat somewhere in between and it needed to tip itself either one way or the other. Which way did Gulliver's Travels tip itself? Because that's, I can't imagine that was straddling that line too difficult. Too difficultly. Hang on, I'll try that again. No, I won't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gulliver's Travels is one of the strangest films that I have seen in a really long time. Usually when I don't like a film, I can understand who it's for and why other people might like it, but I'm genuinely perplexed when it came to tra- uh, Gulliver's Travels. I'm not sure who this film is for. It's not a child's film. It's not an adult's film. I think maybe it's a stoner film. Um, I can't be entirely sure, but I think it could be. It has very little in the way of interesting story or execution. So Now, Love and Other Drugs. This is another one I didn't see, but uh, I really enjoyed hearing what all of, uh, all of my fellow critics thought of it afterwards. That was more entertaining than I think the film could have been. <laughs> Yeah, I think you did well not to go see it. If I had the option again, I think I might prefer not to have seen it. Um, There's really, unfortunately, very little that can be said about this film in a positive way. Um, You have two good-looking, talented actors, and even they don't come out well. So uh, it's it's offensive on a variety of levels. Um, it's offensive to men and it's offensive to women in equal measure. But not, not anyone else, just men and women. <laughs> no, it's, it's, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, well, I'm not sure. I think it would be offensive to everybody else as well. I, oh, okay, I, yeah, I, it's very messy. It, it tries to be at once a romantic comedy, a serious drama that deals with a, a serious illness, Parkinson's disease. It tries to cover a movement that happened with Pfizer and um, Viagra, and it doesn't do that very well. It also uses some really bad sort of blokey comedy that doesn't come across well in the contrast to the uh, dramatic moments. It's tonally all over the place and um, absolutely does not come together as a cohesive film. But otherwise okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you can, you know, look over those things, then you might possibly... You'll have a hell of a time. Fantastic. (laughs) I I look forward to seeing it. (laughs) Now the King's Speech. Um, this is getting mentioned to be Oscar nominated up and down, isn't it? Like this is one of the big time Oscar favourites. It is. I think it's uh, definitely going to do well. It's definitely one of those films that's sort of geared towards that Oscar market. I really, really enjoyed it. And he's dealing with the onset of World War Two, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. It's set around that time. Mm. I mean, I actually think that that's yeah. um, the biggest strength in the film is that it's building towards uh, the onset of World War Two. So the whole time that he's preparing to fix his speech impediment and to make his speech it's the speech that goes out to tell the nation that they should have faith in their leader and it's like it builds so strongly because Mm. you know what's coming is the most atrocious event in you know contemporary history i think that really actually adds a lot of weight to it absolutely yeah it raises a a really good point doesn't it Yeah, yeah definitely 
somewhere. Now, uh, Paul and I did t- talk about this a couple of months ago when we discussed the films of S- Sofia Coppola. <laughs> but as uh, one of our listeners um, told me after listening to it, she still didn't know what exactly I thought of the film after we talked about it at length. I, did, I didn't seem to actually get around to describing whether I liked it or not. Oh, in so that this, case, what so did this, you think of it, Paul? <laughs> This is an excellent opportunity. Yeah, look, I, for the most part, I thought it was rather good. It's, it harkens back to Sophia's familiar style of kind of... She's got this kind of celebrity in exile mm. kind of um, aesthetic. And it's almost like celebrities are the modern equivalent of royalty. and Which is why Marie Antoinette was an appropriate subject for her as well. But this is kind of... Uh, it's While it returns to as- that aesthetic, it also begins to deconstruct it. It's not as beautiful as her previous films. It's not as... The fairy tale land here is tainted. Mm. You know, it's dirty. It's a little gritty. And yeah, there's some terrific scenes in there. And I look, I, I quite enjoy it. I don't think it's among her best work, but I think it's a step up from Marie Antoinette. Um, I have to say, I have to beset that with the provisor, that I don't actually really like Sofia Coppola's work all that much. I'm not a fan of her films. Um, I think whilst technically you can't fault them, they're formally very accomplished they're visually beautiful often stunning uh, i f- i know that the argument is that the style is the substance in her films but i feel as though it is too much on the surface and there isn't enough subtext or enough depth going on um with this film i think the uh, that the the counter argument to that is that the sort of the vacuity that the whole thing is immersed in is the point and that's what she's trying to get across and I understand that and I think that that absolutely does come across but I still always feel with her films that there's not enough going on there isn't enough to grasp onto I just feel that they're a little bit empty and I think that's largely because she chooses empty subject matter um, and it's just not particularly engaging for me fair enough where were you? I was. Uh, I really loved it. Yeah, I think I really respond to what she says in all of her films. I mean, God, I loved Marie Antoinette, and I didn't think I was going to. I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> Life during wartime is, I believe, Todd Sullins's sequel to Happiness, the mega blockbuster that uh, you know swept multiplexes a few years ago as all. Uh, there's all drums about what pedophiles do. I haven't actually seen Happiness yet. But you guys saw Life During Wartime. I did. And I have to say that Happiness is one of my absolute favourite films. I think that film is fantastic. It's so brilliantly darkly comic. And mm. it just it has me simultaneously in hysterics and feeling guilty at once. I think it's an incredible film. Um, Life During Wartime doesn't quite live up to the heights of happiness in terms of creating or communicating that effect and I think that's partially due to the fact that it's exactly the same characters but they are played by different actors um that said the actors who take on these roles do a fantastic job the script is still a very high standard so I actually really enjoyed life during wartime but I think the problem is going to be continually the one that Todd Solondz has had with every film since happiness people want every film that he makes to be happiness and it isn't going to be that's happened and you need to accept that what he makes after that is going to be very different might have certain things in common but you can't expect a filmmaker to make the same film over and over again and I think this is sort of like an answer to those people and to the critics to say Mm. stop expecting me to make the same film here I've made it again with different actors the same characters you don't want this anymore Mm. so you know I think it's time to accept that he makes really great films they're not all going to reach the heights of happiness but it's still very enjoyable very darkly funny that seems to be a response I'm hearing from a lot of critics that didn't like it is that it 
their opinion is oh, he hasn't he he's not grown out of that phase like he's still trying to trying to to uh, thump the same tarp um, as yeah, happiness. Yeah, so I, I think that that's I think the joke's on them. I think he's saying this is what you wanted and I'm not doing it. So yeah. I actually think that it's the reverse. I think that he's kind of quite. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think he's quite cleverly sort of saying you don't want the same thing anymore and here I make it for you and yeah, you're still complaining. I thought it was a bit one note, to be honest. I like I thought it, it there were a lot of wonderful moments and it was thoughtful, but just very it's it's by the halfway through the film I'm like, okay, I understand. We're all pretending, we're all really sad and fucked up and we all want to kill ourselves. You know, that's <laughs> that seemed to be yeah. the main statement he was he seemed to be trying to make. Yeah, one of the things that I do wonder about um this film and, and just put in generally, um, Todd Solon's career from this sort of point on after happiness is that what often filmmaking is considered to be quite a cathartic process for filmmakers. And I think happiness is so depraved that there must have been something of him that came out in that film that he couldn't possibly revisit. And I think that that's, um, if you look at his films after that, they're they're all dark and comic still, but none of them are nearly as depraved. And I I often wonder, sort of, from his perspective, whether or not he just has had something of himself come out in in happiness that can't be. He got it all out of his system too. Or, or you think he might be <laughs> just pulling his punches from that because he's like, oh, I don't really want to revisit that dark. Yeah, place I don't know. Again. I mean, I think I think I think it's definitely a fascinating question I'd, I'd like to know the answer I definitely don't know what the answer to it is mm. but I think that there's something that's preventing him from getting to the same level as as he did and whether or not it's a deliberate choice because he doesn't want to revisit that and he wants to move on or whether it's because there's something that's already happened and can't be recreated I don't know but I, th- I, I do still think that he makes interesting films mm. now Sarah's key which I almost saw and missed I want to know is it should I seek this out is it still I feel like you should seek two thirds of it out. Yeah, I think that might be fair to say. I'm sort of hesitant to to side either way with this film. It's not a case. It's not clear cut really. It's not that it's a good or a bad film. Um, it has elements of both to it. Mm. There are lots of things that are really good about it, and it definitely starts off really well. It creates a a really fantastic sense of frenzy and panic and stress to do with the rounding up of um, the Jewish people in that part of France at that time. And then the problem is that it weaves in an, a contemporary day narrative. And it's always, I find it very troubling when you weave in a contemporary story with something that's so historically significant and you're paralleling the atrocious deaths of thousands of people with somebody's personal life and their personal discovery. And I, I think that that's really problematic because um, the contemporary character it just... Her, her problems are just not that important and her life seems so insignificant in the wake of the things that she's researching. And so I find that when we go back towards her life that I, you just it's so hard to access because it just seems insignificant. Right. Mm. I didn't mind that so much because it was more how the past impacts on the present, and and she it wasn't so much oh she's got a bad marriage or she's got you know kid or all, all this sort of thing. It's not so much oh woe is me because of my circumstances. It was more what the hell are we doing? We're living in this place that was once. Yeah, I think that 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 element is 
where it's at its most interesting, where it's talking about tracing over the past and how you can come to deal with living with yourself and living with a situation and even indeed a a physical environment that has such a connection to such atrocious events. Mm. But I think the problem is that her connection to the story is through one person as if she has a special bond with Mm. this person where she actually has never experienced anything like that in her life and there's no way that she could possibly feel connected to somebody like that when it only comes from the physical building i mean the 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 grief and the guilt certainly you can account for but i think the the feeling of of kinship mm. doesn't make any sense mm. well it sounds like sarah's key is about somebody looking back at a disaster from the past and i think that brings us quite well to tron legacy <laughs> ouch well <laughs> It's that a physically se- hurt right. me. A, no, can I just can I just can I just announce I don't think you're doing announcing this part of the segment oh, sorry. justice. Okay. In the blue corner <laughs> defending Tron Legacy we have Tara Judah. And in the red corner with the stripy shorts we have Sluggin Lee Zachariah ready to take Tron Legacy down. Now I want to I want a clean fight, no hits below the belt. Ding. Uh, uh, well, yeah, you've completely given away my position uh, on that because I was trying <laughs> to keep my vitriol secret. Like when yeah. I came in, I did have a little doll with Trogon Legacy written on it and I was stabbing it with some scissors. <laughs> but that could have meant anything. Yeah, subtlety <laughs> is definitely your strong suit. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so, Tara. I loved Trong Legacy. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I can honestly say that I have not enjoyed two hours in a cinema as much as I enjoyed that for such a long time. I think the film's incredible. I have to also preface that by saying that if you're going to go see this film please for the love of god go see it at IMAX in 3D um it will not look the same on a regular multiplex screen and it definitely won't look the same if you tr- wait and watch it at home on DVD particularly because the IMAX screen actually expands and you get extra footage so go and see it the way it's intended in a proper cinema projected on film proper 3D surround sound The soundtrack to this film is outstanding. Daft Punk do an amazing job and it's incredibly effective. The 3D use is amongst some of the most innovative and exciting that I have ever seen. I think the first 30 to 40 seconds of that film where they trace through the imaginary world into the real world is the most visceral filmic experience that I've ever had. I think that it feels almost like a simulation ride. I think this film is absolutely outstanding for the way in which it uses uh, two different worlds to change the way in which space and time uh, kind of interplay and and act against one another. And I also think that it has some of the most beautiful visuals I've ever seen. It's it's like watching an experimental film where the bikes and the planes sort of weave in and out and the, the lights that go behind them it's like a, it's just like an incredible visual show and it seems like a really wonderful use of film to me. I honestly love it and I have nothing bad to say about it. Over to you. <laughs> well, we now turn our attentions to Tron Legacy, <laughs> which is a film about which none of those things you said can be applied. <laughs> Sorry, we'll keep it clean. Um, no, I thought this was pretty much bad on every level with the exception of Daft Punk. I will agree with you. With Daft, the Daft Punk soundtrack was fantastic. I was bopping my head along going, yeah, wow, this is a really bad film. But my head's bopping along like, yeah. So I liked that. I liked um, Bruce Boxleitner was in it. And that gets a thumbs up from me. Um, but no, it was. I, I found it to be this the, one of the most hollow experiences I've, I've ever had in a film. It was 
there's no point creating a world like that, uh, putting pouring so much money into the CG budget if there's no idea behind it. They, they clearly had no ideas. They had the idea of the light cycle from the original. The light cycle sequence was good. They expanded that to uh, the planes, which, which was fine, I guess. But the rest of it, they didn't really understand or if they understood it, they didn't convey it to us properly, what the rules of the world were, what the boundaries were. There were two different types of people in, and I wasn't sure who all these people populating the world were. Are they, are they sentient? Are they just little computer sprites? I didn't, and I didn't care about them. And it's weird that I didn't really follow any of that because at least half the film is exposition. There is a scene where I, I really wanted to start laughing in the middle of the film because it takes about half an hour out of the film for like three exposition stories in a row where three characters start telling their backstory and it just keeps going. And I feel the director was getting bored because he just started cutting to random shots just to just so he could keep editing. It just kept going and going. Um, there's uh, the main character, Sam Flynn, who has no charisma whatsoever. Every line of dialogue he spouts is something like, well, you know, take that you know it's some sort of Will Smith style punchline that's designed it's written to go into the trailer uh, Jeff Bridges he's CGI to be this young young version of himself and it's so fake and plastic looking I just I just couldn't buy it and some people have said that's because it's a computer image but it's not because in the beginning in the flashback it's in real life and he still looks pl fake and plastic and it just it, it took me out of it completely there is really nothing about this film. I, I just found it annoying in the end um, because there's really no idea in there. But other than that, I agree with you. <laughs> Coach, can I enter the game? Please. Okay, I'm tagging you in. I think that would be wise. Okay. How are you an Avatar fan? Because every criticism you've leveled at this film can be leveled twice as hard at Avatar. Well, any criticism can be leveled at anything. Like no, no, no. no, no I, I absolutely no. I think I think like I I don't I don't understand. It's like Avatar is completely. I mean, to go off for a second, yeah, yeah. it's like it has an uncharismatic lead. It has lines that are straight out of other movies. It's yeah. ridiculously derivative, and I think I, the reason I'm bringing Avatar up is because I think Avatar and Tron Legacy play on the same playing field. They're both looking to be immersive all-encompassing um, blockbuster experiences. And I think, head-to-head, -head, Tron Legacy destroys Avatar. Mm. I was I made no secret of the fact that I was underwhelmed by Avatar when I saw it. Tron Legacy is the first film I've ever seen that truly understands 3D. This is a film that I didn't know what... For years, people have been telling me what what 3D adds to film, and I was I was completely against it. And and people have been telling me for years, oh, it maximizes depth of field to become immersive. And it's like, show me the evidence. And so, oh, didn't you see Avatar? And I'm like, what that giant glowing cartoon? Yeah, I, I took off my glasses halfway through Tron Legacy to make sure the 3D was on. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no. I didn't didn't notice it at all. The Disney logo was amazing. Yeah, that was great. The Disney logo. I give that five stars. <laughs> the Disney logo. And yes, sir. Can I just interject quickly and say that actually not the whole film is in three D. Part of it is in two D, and part of it is in three D. And 3D. that's announced before the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, just, I took my glasses off anybody, during a three D bit. Just in case anybody who's listening is um, wanting to interject <laughs> with that, just, just to clarify, some of the film is in two D. Some of it is. You're taking in 3D. the role of the frustrated listener, <laughs> wanting to yell at me. <laughs> no, leash. I saw it's the first film that like that has levels of things going on deep into the screen. It's it's a computer world that's completely tactile and believable and. 
it's exhilarating at times. I oh, look. I mean, look. The plot's cliched. It's 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 a big silly movie. I think there's some really great ideas in there. They just skim over them. Mm. But I think there's some genuinely. I'm sure that they skim over all of the great ideas. I think that they do actually explore them. Um, I think that one of the most fascinating ideas about the film is that computers and technology get to a point where they begin to become organic in and of themselves. Uh, you see the new race of people that live in the, the grid in the, the imaginary world where previously in the first Tron movie you have very distinct lines between the real world and the grid. There are users and there are people who are there acting um, as players but they're actually users but it's not as clear cut in this film because it's arguing towards the way in which technology begins to evolve in and of itself and it becomes slightly organic and that's one of the things that's supposedly quite terrifying in the film and one of the things that I actually thought was really astute about it um, there haven't been that many films that have sort of addressed the idea that technology is advancing at such a rapid pace that it's almost hurtling out of the, the, the realm of the understanding of the people who even created it I, I think that look. I think that's great. I didn't get any of that from the film. Like, I almost feel that's that's almost an inference too far. Where that's that's a really interesting. Well, film. to be fair, you've not seen Tron. Yeah, but I shouldn't have to. I don't. Think no, well, it is a sequel, it, and I have. It's like, a sequel to a film that nobody has seen. That's uh, nobody who's going to. Ninety-nine percent of the audience has not seen the original Tron. But I every sequel in history refers to the original one. There are very few fine, sequels that I work as standalone movies. Go in and understand what's going on. Tara, hand up. Yeah, yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> I'm going to agree and disagree with both of you. One, I think that it's true that it is a sequel to the original, and seeing the original does add a certain element to it, but. Secondly, I'm going to also agree with Lee that every film should stand alone in and of itself and should be complete and you shouldn't have to have read or seen various other things to be able to understand a film in its entirety. Um, you may have your experience enriched by knowing other superfluous elements or sometimes informative elements, but I always think that a film should be complete in and of itself. Mm. This isn't The Two Towers. This is a, a, a sequel to a film that flopped back when it came out and it's 30 years on. And they really can't rely on an audience having seen. But but before you jump in, I need to come back to the Avatar thing because mm. I didn't get a chance to respond to that. And yep. I, I think uh, look, I understand where you're coming from with it. Uh, maybe an uncharismatic lead, sure. See, I actually didn't mind Sam Flynn. I actually thought he was like I'd, I'd been look, hearing about how yeah. ridiculously uncharismatic Garrett Hedlund was, and and then I saw the film. I was like, it's not that bad. I, I actually kind of like the kid. Yeah. And Olivia Wilde is gorgeous. Well, yeah, that that is her character trait. Yeah. But um, <laughs> look, Sam Worthington. I look, I I liked him in the role. He's playing a jerk marine whose brother was more interesting and a wandering accent. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that, that that was pretty funny. But no, look, I understood. I understood the the rules of James Cameron's world. I understood he he set up these. Look, even if you don't like it, it is it is pulpy science fiction on a huge hmm. level with animals designed by children. It's like, oh, if we get a, he's got like evolutionary biologists in to basically you know design what little kids design. Primary school, and they're like a head of a lion and a okay. body of a bear and a tail of a rhino. That's you know? fine, but there's <laughs> more creativity in each of those animals than there is in the grid, which is our world with a bit of neon on it. Okay, that's. I think it's. I think it's actually a vision of Steve Jobs' head, but uh, well, personally, ooh, but that's a, that's an interesting. <laughs> point. But it, it looks like an. The Apple other thing world, about Avatar is I understood the objective. I understood what those people wanted. I understood what those people wanted, and I understood the plight of our main character. I didn't understand what they were. They spent half the film sitting around debating whether they should do anything and as some of them keep pointing out if you don't do anything nothing bad will happen and 
the objective is really muddled. He needs this thing to get to that place, except if you don't go to him, then he won't get it. But if you do go to him, you might be able to stop the thing that he might not be able to do if you don't leave in the first place. Like, like, I, I don't have any emotional investment he in this story. He wanted to get his father back home. Yeah, he wanted that. But there was, there's this whole thing with this bad guy that's... I, I don't... The, the thrust of the but, plot... But the bad guy wanted to destroy... Yeah, but he needed Kevin this. Flynn he needed this thing in order to get there, and if and the thing that he needed to do that is back where the good guys have it. And if they don't leave there, then he won't get it. Except now, all of a sudden, the bad guy can go to that place and take it. It's pretty muddled. It is really, really muddled. Yeah, there is know, no, there are no clear objectives. I disagree. I, it didn't feel that muddled to me. I, compared to something like Pirates of the Caribbean World's End, it didn't feel that muddled at all. Like, because well, we have yeah, blockbusters like that. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just, I, 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 I actually invested a little bit in this. I actually kind of liked the father-son dynamic that was that was going on there, and I liked this uh, the concept of the ISO and of the you know we we have to preserve this and because this is the next phase of technology and this is what we're really you know. This, this is going to change everything. This is the thing we really need to understand, and to destroy it because it's imperfect is not the way. Um, I, yeah, I thought the film had really cool points to make, but most of all, and you know, like yes, it's pulpy and yes, it's silly and yes, it's full of cliches and it does steal scenes wholesale. Like there's times like you're like, well, that shot's from Batman Begins and that shot's from 2001 and that shot. Yeah. You, you and did you notice the the bit? Uh, I don't know if you saw it. But there's a little bit where the entire thing is Star Wars. No. Yeah. Absolutely there not. There's just one, one There's little a little bit, bit of Star Wars in it, but no, not the entire thing. Um not not any more than Harry Potter is. Um so yeah, I look, I I enjoyed the hell out of it. I've got to say, I really really enjoyed it, but I echo what Tara says a billion percent in saying see it at IMAX 3D. This is its natural habitat. Get a seat in the center and let it blow you away. As an audio visual experience, I think I think it's amazing. As as a blockbuster film, it's it's fine. Um and I got to say, I even got a kick out of Michael Sheen's David Bowie impression. <laughs> I love, I love Michael Sheen, but uh, that really tested my life. Really, That's, dude, he was oh. Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> it was hilarious. I, I, oh God, no, no, I don't want to say anymore because I want to keep loving Michael Sheen. And the more I think about his scene in Tron Legacy, the more I can't. I'm hesitant to speak about Michael Sheen because I, I, I think as he spent so long on British television being Tony Blair <laughs> that it was so hard for such a very long time to see him as anything that wasn't Tony Blair. And <laughs> even when he's a lichen, sometimes I see Tony Blair as a lichen. So, um. Well, he's keeping to controversial <laughs> world figures because for, for a lot of the film, I thought he was playing Julian Assange. Uh, <laughs> I thought that's where he's hiding. <laughs> Quick, get him. WikiLeaks legacy. There we go. Leaking from within the group. That's topical. That's I'm how we can get all the information. There you go. Yes. <laughs> We've cracked it here first. But look, honestly, uh, listeners, um, come tell us who you agree with. Comment on the website. Because uh, one of us... Oh, there we go. Linkage. Like it. Absolutely. One of us is definitely very, very wrong, but it's up to you to tell us who that is. Mm, we're seeing there are three of us on this show and two of us pretty much agree. Fine. I'm really, really wrong. Down. Come and tell me why. <laughs> are you happy now? <laughs> <laughs> now Tara, you have selected for this month's Take It Paul Hell is for Hyphenet's Filmmaker of the Month It's Mr. John Waters <gasps> uh, John Waters Yeah he- Writer, director, raconteur 
Mustache owner. He is all of those things and so much more. Um, <laughs> he's he's a jack of all vaudevillian trades. He's the Pope of trash. He wears a crown of filth and considers himself a filth elder. Um, he's responsible for bringing American underground cinema into the mainstream. He's historically extraordinarily important in that sense. And he also makes really awesome and hilarious films. <laughs> So why'd you pick him? Oh, sorry. No, you just said that. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, his, his career started in the 1960s. Um, most of the first uh, few of his films are unavailable or incredibly difficult to get hold of. Um, first few are shorts, 1964, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket on 8mm film. Um, 1966, Roman Candles, which was actually triple projected on three 8mm films. So even if you had the opportunity to see it, it wouldn't be the same experience. Um, 1968, Eat Your Makeup, which was his move to 16mm. Uh, then 1969, Mondo Trasho, which is also 16mm film and is... Unfortunately, unable to be released because of the majority of the film is set to soundtrack and told through the music rather than dialogue. And because of this, uh, the clearing the rights to the music would be so expensive that it's never been worth his while to do it. Uh, so we're never going to see wow. a commercial release of Mondo Trasho, although it has had a small... VHS release some time ago, although I, I believe that that's still illegal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is able to be sourced uh, on the internet, um, as is his second film, Multiple Maniacs. I have seen Mondo Trasho. It is, um, it's shot in, yeah, as you say, uh, gritty 16mm, black and white. Um, they didn't have the capabilities for sync sound at the time um, no, available to them. No, came in 1969 later on when they did the Diane Linkletter story. That was where they first tried out the uh, sync sound camera, which if you watch the Diane Linkletter stories available on YouTube, um, you'll see that it was an experiment <laughs> with the sound <laughs> and that it hadn't quite been ironed out yet. Now, with Mondo Trasho, yeah, as you say, it's wall-to-wall music. It's like the soundtrack's like American Graffiti. Like, there's about yeah. 50 trains, Elvis, Sinatra. Like, yeah, it cost them a fortune. The film, the like, I love the fact that John Waters' film, feature filmmaking career begins with a shot of a man in an executioner's outfit chopping the heads off chickens. That's your, that's your first... That's it's a that. good way to start. And it, it should also <laughs> be said about, about that film that... Um, and I've only seen 11 minutes of the footage that's available on YouTube uh, free. But uh, it should be said that there there is a shot at, towards the beginning of the film where Mary Vivian Pierce begins her day riding on a bus and she's reading Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. And I think given that the film uses um, so much music in such a, a kind of kitchen camp way that it's it's just awesome that he credits Kenneth Anger yeah. by having his book in the film. And I, yeah. I, I really think that that's just ace. And there's a lot of anger influence in the film too. Like, yeah, Definitely. Yeah, a lot of, you know, people ripping clothes off women and, you know, casting them out and things like that. There's a lot of that kind of Kenneth Anger visual motifs yeah. as well as, um, yeah, as the Wizard of Oz is kind of referenced and a few other sort of things. And, 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 and it has, he sets the tone early for his cast too, for his um, so-called Dreamlanders because, um, of course, all these early films were made under the banner of um, Dreamland Studios. Mm. They were like his little Warholian factory of actors like Mary Vivian Pierce, Divine, of course, David Lockery, Ming Stoll, 
um, all these sort of characters. Uh, I haven't seen Multiple Maniacs, but I have uh, I have gotten a hold of that too. But as but like Mono Trasho, it's it had a limited VHS release, but is currently out of print yeah. in all forms. And then after that, we get to 1972, which is Pink Flamingos, and this is where John Waters starts using 16 and 35 mil print. And this is one of the original six midnight movies um, <laughs> that actually played in the midnight movie cinemas in the Elgin Theatre and and such in America. This film has been so famously controversial that it's actually still not available on DVD in the UK. Even though the BBFC passed it a couple of years ago now, no distributor wants to touch it. Um, And the only way you can buy it in the UK is to have it imported from the US or Canada. So it still has controversy surrounding it to this day. I mean, this film famously had raids done on screenings. People would get arrested for watching this movie. I mean, I can't even imagine how exciting that must be to see a film (laughs) that you could get arrested for watching. Um, But it basically is most famous for its coprophagia sequence at the end where um, for people who don't know what coprophagia is, it is the act of feeding on feces. Um, It is worth saying though that since this film has come out and since John Waters has himself called it coprophagia, he's also admitted that it doesn't technically fit the definition because Divine isn't actually feeding on it she's she's just eating it for camera <laughs> and, and she's not liking it effect. either like it's she's trying to trying no. to level best to look like she enjoys it but she is not enjoying it yeah. uh, this, this film has um wonderful oh. stories surrounding it as well i mean it cost ten thousand dollars to make um they had to fire the lead cinematographer uh, in in this in the process of filmmaking because he couldn't cope with the, <laughs> the, what the content was you know where where, where divine gets sent a bowel movement he was gagging and it was ruining the shot which apparently was otherwise a perfect take and you know there's there's still been a lot of controversy even amongst um john waters fans think that the the chicken fucker scene goes a bit too yeah, far that one um, disturbed me well, because it's a real chicken, and you see it scratches is a real on and her legs. John Waters' official response to that is that afterwards they killed and cooked the chicken and ate it. So he thinks that it's more. So it's perfectly fine to have <laughs> sex with it beforehand. What's the problem? And scratch up your lead, act- you scratch up your actress and whatnot. Is it more or less ethical <laughs> than other ways of eating? Uh, I mean, you know, I'm yes, sure it's, it's less ethical. I but think look, it's I'm probably I'm still better than going to KFC, but you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> now, have you, have you seen Pink Flamingos? Luke? I saw it for the first time recently. And your verdict? My verdict is, uh, well, when I first saw Clockwork Orange, it had all this uh, notoriety surrounding it because it had been banned. And, you know, it was this shocking thing. And I watched it and I thought, it's an amazing film. I absolutely loved it. But it wasn't actually any more violent or shocking than a lot of the violent films I would see in the cinema every day. I kind of thought the same would be true of Pink Flamingos. I thought, okay, over the years, its impact will have been told. (laughs) This is not the case. (laughs) This is, uh, I had to look away at certain (laughs) moments. I was my, the rest of the time, my mouth was on the floor. I could not believe what I was It's quite staggering, isn't it? The shit they do in that film. Literally. Yeah, <laughs> between the chicken fuck, the singing asshole, the <laughs> coprophagia, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, yeah, like the uh, the you know the daughter sucking the father's dick or the mother sucking the yeah yeah the incest. <laughs> Just say incest. Yeah. I think we the get the incest. idea. Yeah, uh, but actual you know yeah. But what I but look, I did actually respond to it, which surprised me. Like I did really respond to it, and I realized later it was because 
what really annoys me is when filmmakers try to be weird or shocking mm. for the sake of being weird and shocking. I get the impression that this is a perfectly normal film for John Waters to make. He's just making a film about people he knows. And then he doesn't think it's weird. It's just a story about, you know, that was the impression I got. And he does it with such tremendous affection mm. that he's not judging any of these people or putting them on show. He's just affectionately telling you their story. Absolutely. And I, I, I love think that. That's absolutely true. And that's, I mean, one of the greatest things about John Waters and, you know, I have to understanding contextually as well that this is all beginning in underground cinema in America. At the same time, you know, you've got the Kucha brothers making films and Kenneth Anger and, and, you know, various other people making incredible films, Stan Brackage. This is also moving to a point where it's like, I have a camera and I can make a film. I have friends and a camera and that's that's where it starts. I mean, his first short was made for $30. The budgets are <laughs> completely non-existent. But where it starts to get interesting, and unfortunately I'm going to gloss a little bit over um, female trouble and um, desperate living as a result, is when, he, when we get to 1981 and he makes Polyester. Mm. And this is really a very big moment um, in terms of the way in which American underground cinema made its way into the mainstream. And really... The, what we consider an American indie flick today is partially indebted to his movement of bringing his films from the underground into the mainstream. And a lot of that has to do with making fun of his own his own place, which is Baltimore and suburbia and the American dream and heteronormativity and all of the things that come along with that. And making this film so that it's a melodrama and it's got genre aspects to it, but it still has that element of bad taste. Most fascinatingly, when this film came out, it wasn't received particularly well by critics and for, not, for the reasons that you wouldn't think that a John Waters film would be poorly perceived... Uh, received by critics and that was because they didn't think it was offensive enough <laughs> they thought that the the low budget poor quality aesthetics and bad taste of his earlier films had been lost and the month the monthly film bulletin famously um, reported that jeff andrew said that it was more polished less likely to offend and more concerned with revealing in reveling in lurid kitsch and dubious taste which that in somehow is a damning statement, <laughs> which it yeah. shouldn't be. But so it, it's fascinating that he then received a lot of flack from the people who were fans of his films that then didn't like the fact that he was moving into the mainstream. But John Waters has always said and still says, you know, he wants to see Hairspray's been remade. Um, it's now a major Broadway musical. Crybaby's been a Broadway musical. He says he wants to see all of his films in, made into mainstream musicals. He'd like to see Polyester on Ice. I'd personally quite like to see Polyester on Ice, but <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. Now, have you seen Female Trouble or Desperate Living? Just heading back. I, I've seen both of them. Uh, I really, really liked Female Trouble. <laughs> I thought that was it was an oddly sweet film. Even though Divine is a criminal and a juvenile delinquent, she's kind of taken advantage of throughout mm. the film, and she's kind of oddly sympathetic in that way, yeah. even though she's barking mad. And it is kind of, I don't know, there's a strange quality to seeing an actor rape themselves on yes! the screen. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. That was, uh, that was something else. Divine but, rapes Divine. But I loved, uh, look, I really loved Female Trouble, but Desperate Living I flipped for. Really? I think that is, I honestly, I think that's John Waters' Where the Wild Things Are. <laughs> like, that, this is a character just stepping through, you know, the looking glass, and which, and there wasn't a looking glass in Where the Wild Things Are, but I'm mixing my metaphors here. Sure. Um, it's just a character going through to this other world and completely leaving the old world behind where there are new rules, there's a new hierarchy and you have to learn to live in this. I was really blown away by it. Wow, that's a really interesting take. Well, this is one of the things as well that's really 
sort of problematic, um, but wonderfully so about John Waters as well, is that he always sort of reiterates that he hates message movies and he prides himself on the fact that his work has so no socially redeeming value. And yet so many of his films are, I mean, they're all counterculture films. They're all about rising up against oppression or, you know, dominant ideologies or um, racial injustice or those sorts of things. And so it's very difficult not to see his films as politicised and particularly with um, Desperate Living, you've definitely got that sort of power hierarchy and that structure that you can't help but think, well, he's obviously rebelling against that and making a statement about it. Mm. And it's, it's hard to reconcile because of the way in which the aesthetics work um which is that he's got sort of trash aesthetics and camp aesthetics and one of the main um indicators of camp as um and to be really annoying here susan sontag always says is that um <laughs> it has no it, it's apolitical it has no um sort of alignment and it, it doesn't it doesn't criticize or defend any sort of political point of view and it's really difficult to work out sometimes whether or not his aesthetic project and his moral project are online or if um, you know there because there is that playful element to the films as well he's just he's making films with his friends he's making films that he just wants to make mm. um but it's very hard not to see him as a political being you, you know you've got in female trouble the the electric chair sequence at the end is made like an oscar speech yeah. and, you know you've yeah. got you it, the, the film is dedicated to um charles tex watson of the manson family I mean, you know, it's hard <laughs> to see that there's no kind of like there's no statement there i think there definitely is but mm. it, he always tries to push himself against that um which you i know, think if you're an artist though that can't help but come out of you yeah. yeah, your own feelings, your own view of the world can't yeah. help but escape as much as you try to... In making these it. films in the first place, it's a political act because mm. making anything that's um, situated against the mainstream in which any underground or countercultural film necessarily has to be against a mainstream, then it's already a political act mm. just in making the film. So, yeah, I mean, I think that you have to take that with a pinch of salt. Yeah, I really enjoyed Female Trouble. It did feel a bit... I, he has revisited that... Um, you know, uh, sort of uh, cult of celebrity, criminal seeking fame theme quite a bit. I mean, mm. there, there's it's he checks it in Pink Pink Flamingos. It's in Female Trouble. It's in um, Serial Mom. It's in like it, that theme does come up quite a bit with him. And there is that sense sometimes he's making the same film over and over again. I think there are subtle variations that s- that fit the times. Um, as when we'll get to Serial Mom, um, Mom, I think that's that comment was very appropriate for the time in which it was made, as it, it probably wasn't the time he made Female Trouble. Uh, but, yeah, I found that really, really enjoyable. Um, yeah, and Desperate Living is great. I appreciate it even more now that you put it in those terms. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I could have. <laughs> um, I, now, I've not yet seen Polyester, so we'll, um, we'll take a look at that. So what is it you like about Polyester so uh, much? Polyester, well, yeah, par- apart from the fact that it, it does mark a really important move sort of historically. I also just think it's a it's a really clever film. It's where he sort of, if you were going to say that John Waters was arguing for something, it's probably where his strongest argument comes out. You have in Pink Flamingos, Divine saying, filth are my politics and filth is my life. And a lot of people attribute that to being John Waters' personal worldview or, you know, his auteuristic worldview that he might be trying to get across. And it's actually not the presumed edict that, filth is and politi- are the politics of his life but more so that um, filth are the politics of the life of the American dream and capitalism and the dominant ideologies that that comes along with and you really see this in polyester um, you have the odorama card which uh, yes it is the first and say, only <laughs> film today ever shown in odorama it uh, is um, and my, my odorama card 
the whole card smells the same, I'll be honest. None of the 10 points smell particularly differently. But <laughs> in theory, you have these different smells and some of them are pleasant and some of them are unpleasant. And when you get to the 10th one at the very end of the film, it's air freshener. And <laughs> it's <laughs> you laugh, but it's really important because you have all these conflictingly good and bad and positive and negative things. And at the end of it, you have it all masked with this, this facade of artificiality. And that's exactly what John Waters is basically saying about the American dream. It's like you say that there are good things and bad things there are delinquents there are squares there are you know and these these themes come up again and again in his films that there are sort of two binary opposites but at the end of the day all of those things are masked by this american dream that people want to buy into and that it's uh, it's a, it's all artifice and I, I think that that's um one of the things that's just fantastic about polyester plus it is hilarious it is pretty funny but it's also on top of uh, what you were saying he's gone in the space of four films from uh, Divine representing the most extreme of counterculture, American counterculture, to now being a housewife, shocked by it all. And Absolutely. I think that's, that's uh, I mean, that, that level of textuality to it is just, it just re- really drives home a lot of the points I think he's trying to make in that film, where she is the one, and you, you keep expecting her to flip and, and turn into this wild character, but she doesn't, she stays straight throughout and is yeah. just trying to deal with all the craziness around her. What better inversion could there be than uh, enormous male drag queen epitomizing housewifery i yeah. mean it's just it's fantastic traditional american values <laughs> yeah. it's great it's yeah it's it's, it's outstanding and then from there we go on to it was quite a big break it was seven years and yeah, it took a while for um for his next film to come out, but then he made his most, and I think probably it would still stand as his most commercial film, um, and certainly his very first PG film, yeah. Um, yeah. seeing as everything else had pretty much had an X rating up until this point, where we get Hairspray in 1988, and this is where Ricky Lake really starts to come into her own, I'll have to say, and <laughs> she makes an appearance in quite a few of his films, and wow, is she great. <laughs> now, I've not seen Hairspray. It's really, it looks really uh, professional and grown up. I think um, one of the greatest successes that John Waters has had is to bring subversion into the mainstream. Hooray, it's about time. You know, I mean, it's, it's all very well having these great underground um, countercultural films, but if nobody gets to see them, then it's harder for the message to permeate or even for the a political aesthetic to permeate um and there's a sense the way of preaching that he, to the converted yeah the way in which he's been able to bring that into i mean my cousin's seen hairspray and <laughs> i can't imagine she, she doesn't know who john waters is i'm sure but the fact that this this film is so accessible um mm. is, is just fantastic and, and the musical would have brought a whole new generation yeah, absolutely of yeah the movie adaptation of the musical exactly. would have brought people looking for it as well so yeah yeah, and then um, Crybaby is also a musical. Um, and I think Crybaby was probably my first John Waters obsession when I was a teenager because, um, let's be honest, it has Johnny Depp in it. And when I was about 12 or 13, I probably thought he was the greatest man in the world. <laughs> um, and, yes, watching him cry a single tear and sing songs about <laughs> <laughs> anti-square kind of um, delinquent qualities was just brilliant and I think that um, that's also one of his more successful films because that's also made it onto Broadway since Mm. I haven't seen that or Serial Mom I have to say now I saw Serial Mom recently I thought it was terrific Serial Mom was great (laughs) Kathleen Turner killing people because they're wearing because they deign to wear white shoes after Labor Day (laughs) 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 that's an awesome premise for a film it's a tough premise to play outside of the US I think (laughs) yeah but 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 that's the thing though it's so uh, so um, typically, like um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Like so perfectly American. Mm. It's just such a great reflection of American society and particularly where American society was in the mid-90s because that was when the rise of obs- a national obsession with serial killers started to really yeah. happen. You know, yeah. coming out of Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer and, and you know, and suddenly you had swap cards of serial killers and that kids were trading and things like that. And so Serial Mum really tapped into the zeitgeist in that regard and Kathleen Turner's brilliant in it. She's she really so is. so good. She really is. And how perfect is it that someone's finally commenting on how absolutely psychotic these types of etiquette and rules are <laughs> yes. like, that, you know that it would it would drive someone to irritation to the point where they would murder people i mean that's just <laughs> i can't wait to see them kill them with you know household condiments <laughs> yeah. and didn't she kill someone with a ham <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's yeah and that's the thing it's it's taking the piss out of that sort of you know american you know middle america kind of we you know we have roast every sunday and we dress like this and we have you know that sort of yeah. judeo-christian type tradition that's um that they live by that's really quite fraudulent I yep. saw uh, I saw Pekka his his uh, next film after Serial Mum. I I got to say that's the only one I didn't like. It's it really felt like he was he was trying to make a commercial film. Like he was he was really trying to reach out to people who wouldn't see his films normally, and it really fell flat. But I I do think it's really telling that it's about a photographer who sells out. Yeah, I I have to say Pekka is my least favorite John Waters film. Um, I. I like every John Waters film. There isn't one that I dislike, but that is definitely um, at the bottom of my list. I think that it is a little bit too commercial, to be yeah. perfectly honest. I, d- I don't think it's nearly as interesting um, as a lot of his other work. Mm. But you thought it was fine. Other than yeah, that. I still enjoyed it. Yeah. It wasn't too bad. I watched it on the heels of a marathon where I'd seen all of his other stuff and was blown away by it. And then Pekka was a bit of a... It is a little bit of a mm, letdown yeah. in that context, definitely, yeah. And then after that, we come to the 2000s and Cecil B. Demented, which I have not seen and I'm dying to see because uh, it just looks so this, nutty. This and film is so wonderful. Um, and not only because it finally addresses the fact that lots of us don't want to watch Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I love it already. Um, and there, there is there is a, a moment where they break into the studios where they're filming a faux scene of Forrest Gump and it's honestly, it's hilarious. One of the greatest moments on celluloid that you'll ever see. Um, and, and, you know, the director sort of screams out, no one can stop the popularity of Forrest Gump. And, and Melanie Griffith screams back, I fucking hate Forrest Gump. And it, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's just a beautiful beautiful moment um and we we know that already john waters has a problem with forrest gump he always says when um complaining about the fact that you know people would destroy copies of pink flamingos instead of turning it off he's always says to them why don't you just turn it off that's what we do when we watch forrest gump you know (laughs) you don't have to watch this crap if you don't want to um and yeah i mean forrest gump is probably the prototypical middle america film yeah absolutely yeah and and interesting yeah and it's if you watch it again, you'll notice it's decidedly fascist, but that's a story oh, no, for another I, time. Yeah, I have my whole... <laughs> yeah, it's revisionist history in the worst way. Yeah, yeah, I have my own problems with that too. But um, in, in Cecil B. Demented, the, the dialogue is so wonderful and it's got this idea of terrorist cinema that I honestly wish would actually take off and that people would go around and push over the publicity displays for bad films in multiplexes <laughs> and kind of, you know, start actually acting out. But there's this one really great bit where one of the um, the renegades sort of says, didn't they, they go to a, um, a meeting where all the producers are and he says, didn't you produce that bad Hollywood remake of that beautiful foreign language film? And the response is, I had to, you know, American audiences won't watch subtitles. Like their kind of weak responses are just so perfect and mm. so well illustrated in this film that 
I, I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't enjoy this. My first ever John Waters film was uh, at a film festival and uh, it was A Dirty Shame, his most recent one. That was my first experience with John Waters and when I first saw it I thought, oh, this is a bit extreme, I like this, <laughs> this is pushing the boundaries a bit. Now having seen most of his films, I, it's a bit tame, it's a bit sweet looking back on it. Yeah, it, abs- it absolutely is. I mean, it, it's kind of, what I like most about it is that it's, it's the ultimate linking between like John Waters and Jackass. Like you have Johnny Knoxville, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. like of course it was it was always going to happen, and it finally did. So yeah, it's like I addressing think the lineage. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. <laughs> bringing bringing it into the the contemporary day and sort of handing over the gauntlet almost. Mm. Well, he's got to be mellowing with age as well, I guess, to to an extent. I mean, you know, he's you can't keep being that angry no, twenty no, year old yeah, filmmaker yeah, forever. Yeah. Now, A Dirty Shame was 2004. He's not made a film since. He's also been apparently trying to get a, a kid's film made. A kid's film? A kid's film called Fruitcake. About kids or four kids? <laughs> four kids. All right. John Waters' film for kids. I'd, I'd show to it to my children if I had any. Somebody needs to finance it. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, I think you should all definitely go and seek these films out because I feel richer and sicker for having studied him. That's good. That was the intention. Thank you very much. Thank you for making us wallow in filth. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for having me. And we'll see you all next month in 2011. Yes. Happy New Year, everybody. And um, keep watching flicks and uh, we'll be with you then. Bye.